Hi, this is Professor Jim Paisley. Are you tired of the five-minute news clips presented every night by the talking heads on the national news? Would you like to know what is really going on? I have taught American and European history for the past 27 years. I find it fascinating how history truly does repeat itself. When we watch the evening news, no one seems to know anything about how current events are all tied to the past. Critical race theory, crime in our cities, federal versus state powers, the Arab-Israeli conflict? How about international relations with Russia, China, and Europe? On my shows, I give a historical perspective to what is currently happening in our world. Join me weekly to find the true history behind what is happening today. As Election Day, November 8th, is turning into Election Week or Month, the outcomes are being dissected through the lens of the 2024 presidential election. And of course, the number one topic is who is going to run on the Republican ticket. I found a great article that talked about Trump and DeSantis. It was written by Brian Junedepth uh, in The American Thinker. And he says that Florida was a major success for Governor Ron DeSantis, who won big, along with Senator Marco Rubio. Now, DeSantis should be the role model for the other 25 or so Republican governors, as he gave basically a master class in handling COVID prudently, based on science rather than on hype, and punched back hard against the woke leftist culture infecting the rest of the country. Now, many Republicans left blue states like New York, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Illinois and turned turned Florida into a deeper shade of red, leaving these northern states a deeper shade of blue, simply by virtue of migration. Now, this partially explains Florida's electoral results, but much credit goes to Governor DeSantis and his governorship. As such, DeSantis has become the darling of the media, Trump-hating rhinos, and much of the Republican establishment. Now, are they enamored over his ability to punch back against the left? Or is their newfound affection due to DeSantis possibly displacing former President Donald Trump as the Republican nominee in 2024? For the anyone-but-Trump crowd, DeSantis is a gift from the heavens. Now, should he win the nomination, the left will turn on him in a dime, make no mistake, just as they did on Trump once he became the nominee in 2016. Now, Trump quickly morphed from being a regular on Morning Joe to his new persona as a racist buffoon as soon as he became Hillary Clinton's electoral opponent. Now, if both Trump and DeSantis run for president in 2024, It will be hard-fought and nasty battle, as was the 2016 GOP primary season. Now, Trump is the master at branding his opponents, and not in a flattering way. We've seen it. 
The last Florida governor to earn this, learn this was Low Energy Jeb. Remember him, Jeb Bush? So will the next one be Ron DeSanctimonious, as Trump called him? Now, primaries are a time of choosing as each candidate makes their case to their party's electorate. However, whoever emerges victorious, assuming the candidates don't annihilate each other in the process, whoever wins will be primed for the main event. Now, Democrats in the media hope that Trump and DeSantis destroy each other, leading to a Pence-Pompeo or a Haley Nome ticket that loses quietly in a McCain or Romney fashion, allowing the deep state and the ruling class to return to some semblance of pre-Trump normal, normalcy. Now, the author of the article, this Dr. Brian Jundep, offers another possibility, and one I hadn't thought of. He says, suppose all the Trump and DeSantis sparring is nothing but theater. What if the two Florida residents have discussed plans and strategy already? Trump still has his strong MAGA base. We've all seen it. And in a CPAC straw poll a few months ago, he was favored as the 2024 nominee over DeSantis by 69 to 24%. So it's still Trump's party. Now, DeSantis is an exemplary governor, but he doesn't have any national governing experience, unlike Trump, who has already spent four years as president. DeSantis, not being independently wealthy, will be beholden to the donor class supporting his candidacy, possibly clipping his wings should he become president. Trump doesn't have this problem. Trump, true, has his baggage. His brash personality and inability to turn the other cheek, features that both annoy and thrill his detractors and supporters alike, as few Republicans have the ability to punch back against the leftist forces against them. Hollywood, academia, corporate media, Wall Street, big pharma, big sports, and the coastal latte-sipping elites all would love to see Trump go down in flames. Now, the ruling class would like nothing better than for Trump and DeSantis to split the GOP vote, leaving the door wide open for another destructive Democratic administration. Watch the media do their best to set up this scenario. Now, the author's theory is that Trump and DeSantis have formed a secret alliance, allowing the Trump-hating rhinos to pour hundreds of millions into DeSantis's potential campaign. The two could feud publicly, sucking the air out of the political room for the next year, and then surprise everybody by joining forces. Not only will they have a huge campaign war chest, but the never-Trumpers, who love DeSantis one minute, will have no idea what to do when they get their wish, except that their guy is running for the White House with another guy that they don't like. Now, this would be an unbeatable ticket assuming the election systems, particularly in swing states, get straightened out. DeSantis would have four years in an under, as an understudy, and after Trump cleans up the numerous flaming messes that we've let, now seen under the Biden-Obama administration, DeSantis would be well-positioned to continue making America great again for another four or eight years. 
Now, all Trump would have to do is claim New York as his primary residence to avoid the Constitution's effective prohibition on the president and vice president coming from the same state. That's right. Part of the Constitution says the candidates for president and vice president can't be from the same state. So, I'll I'll tell you, it's right here in Article 2 of the Constitution. It specifically says, The electors shall meet in their respective states and vote by ballot for two persons, of whom one at least shall not be an inhabitant of the same state with themselves. So, how do you fix that? Well, the way it stands, it would prevent Florida's electors from voting for the president and vice president, a handicap that no rational person would even begin to burden a ticket with. And basically, predictions are a dime a dozen these days, but Trump and DeSantis are too smart to destroy each other. Trump helped DeSantis win the governorship, and DeSantis knows Trump could dispatch him as he did 16 other talented and experienced primary opponents in 2016. So don't listen to the hype from Fox News and other Trump-hating media that Trump is finished. All he has to do is declare his residence as New York, and he has a green light to move forward. So this feud that we're going to be told all about between Trump and DeSantis, I don't know that I'd necessarily buy into it. These are a couple of really smart guys, okay? Maybe it's all part of the plan. So, I have to ask now, how bad, if this mudslinging starts, will it get? And I thought it'd be fun to look at a little history of past elections. I'm talking going all the way back to damn near the beginning. Let's start with Jefferson and Adams in 1800. Now, in case you're wondering exactly how down and dirty these campaigns got, consider the fact that this is the only election in history where a vice president has run against the president that he was currently serving under. You can imagine that things were a little tense in the White House in the months leading up to the election. So that's right, you have two opposing parties. One is president, one is vice president, and now the vice president's running against this guy. So Jefferson hired a writer to pen insults rather than dirty his own hands. One of his most creative lines said that Adams was a hideous, hermaphroditical character which has neither the force and firmness of a man, nor the gentleness or sensibility of a woman. That's right, 1800. There's some mudslinging for you. Now, Adams' Federalists carried things even further, and they asked voters, Are you prepared to see your dwellings in flames? Female chastity violated? Children writhing on a pike? Great God of compassion and justice, shield my country from destruction. Now, I'll bet the Federalists would be so very upset to know that Jefferson was immortalized in 1936 as one of the America's great presidents on Mount Rushmore. So, 1800, in the country's first contested presidential election, supporters of Thomas Jefferson claimed the incumbent, John Adams, wanted to marry off his son to the daughter of King George III and create an American dynasty under British rule. Jefferson haters called the challenger a fraud, a coward, a thief, and a mean-spirited, low-lived fellow, the son of a half-breed Indian squaw, sired by a Virginia mulatto father. Man. As it turns out, Jefferson won the election. 
And after such a nasty election, Congress said, we can't have this anymore, and they passed the 12th Amendment, stating that the nominee to get the second most number of votes would no longer be elected as president. That's right, the way it started out, whoever got the most votes became president, whoever got the second number of votes became vice president. Can you imagine a Trump and Hillary ticket? Can you imagine that? Think back to the recent elections. Think if you had Biden as president and Trump as vice president. Wow. Good thing they changed that one, right? So let's go on to 1828. Jackson versus Adams. Now, apparently those Adams boys were pretty scrappy fellows. John Quincy Adams is the son of the original John Adams. Now, when Andrew Jackson ran against incumbent John Quincy Adams in 1828, it wasn't pretty. Adams' previous term had been a very successful one, but he was prepared to sling a little mud anyhow. Now, he and his handlers said Jackson had the personality of a dictator, was too uneducated to be president. They even claimed he spelled Europe U-R-O-P-E and hurled all sorts of horrible insults at his wife, Rachel. Now, Rachel had been in an abusive marriage with a man who finally divorced her, but divorce was still quite the scandal at the time, and the Federalists called her a dirty black wench, a convicted adulteress, and said she was prone to open and notorious lewdness. Wow. On their end, Jackson's people said that Adams had sold his wife's maid as a concubine to the Tsar of Russia. Well, as we all know, Jackson won pretty handily. But boy, talk about slinging mud. So let's move to 1860. Now you think, surely, Abraham Lincoln, they're all pure as a driven snow, right? Abraham Lincoln? Well, yep, even Abraham Lincoln was dealt with his share of mud. But he was pretty good at dealing it out, too. Now, although it's normal and expected for candidates to stump across the country in any little small town that will have them, in 1860 it was considered a little tacky to do that. Stephen Douglas chose this tactic anyhow, but claimed that he really wasn't on the campaign trail. He was really just taking a leisurely train ride from D.C. to New York to visit his mom. Now, Lincoln and his supporters knew what was going on, and they took note of the fact that it took over a month for him to get there and even put out a they even put it went so far as to put a lost child handbill out looking for Douglas okay just like you know how they have on the, on the milk cartons today you know well you know a lost child well that's what Lincoln and his cronies did they set out a handbill all along the trail between uh, Washington DC and New York and they handed these things out and it said um Basically, left Washington, D.C. sometime in July to go home to his mother, who was very anxious about him, seen in Philadelphia, New York, Hartford, Connecticut, and at a clam bake in Rhode Island. Answers to the name of Little Giant. Talks a great deal, very loud, always about himself. Now, Little Giant, that's a slam at him as well. Okay, that's a pot shot at Douglas. Douglas was only five foot four, so they called him Little Giant. Now, 
he, the way they referred to it, they said he was said to be about five feet nothing in height and about the same in diameter. <laughs> now, needless to say, Douglas isn't going to take this sitting down. He took aim at Lincoln, saying he was a horrid-looking wretch, sooty and scroundly in aspect, a cross between a nutmeg dealer, the horse swapper, and the nightman. Want to hear another one? He called Lincoln is the leanest, lankest, most ungainly mass of legs and arms and hatchet face ever strung on a single frame. Wow. Still think that our politicians sling mud? Let me give you another one. Cleveland versus Blaine in 1884. Now, Grover Cleveland had kind of the reputation that uh, Bill Clinton got with the ladies, okay? During his campaign, stories of his lecherousness were plentiful. One was verified, though. Cleveland, while still a bachelor, had fathered a child with a widow named Maria Halpin. He fully supported the child, so really, by today's standards, he really didn't do anything wrong. Now, you know, I mean, there weren't any marriages ruined, no paternity tests, no child support issues. Nevertheless, the Republican Party who supported candidate James Blaine, took this and ran with it. And they made up the chant, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? And they used it at every rally. Now, Blaine wasn't an innocent either. He was accused of shady dealings with the railroad, which was confirmed when a letter was found in which Blaine pretty much confirmed that he knew he was involved in corrupt business. And he signed the letters by saying, My regards, Please burn this letter. Now, Cleveland's Democrats made up their own chant based on his writings. Burn this letter. Burn this letter. So what a good time that had to be. How about another? Hoover and Smith, 1928. Now, Democrat Al Smith lost pretty bad to Republican Herbert Hoover, largely due to one reason, his religion. At the time of the election, the Holland Tunnel in New York was being finished up. Now, Republicans, are you ready for this? Told everyone that the Catholic, Smith, had commissioned a secret tunnel 3,500 miles long from the Holland Tunnel in New York to the Vatican in Rome, and that the Pope would have a say in all presidential matters if Smith was elected as president. Now, it didn't probably help that Smith called upon Babe Ruth as one of his campaign uh, supporters. And you think it would work in his favor. But sure enough, Babe Ruth would show up at events wearing only his undershirt, holding a mug of beer, half-canned, and if people opposed his viewpoint, Ruth would simply say, to hell with you, and be done with him. Not the best spokesman. Now, Let's go all the way back to the very first presidential election, 1788-1789. It's the only election in our nation's history in which there was no contest. Organized political parties hadn't even formed yet, and George Washington ran unopposed. His victory is the only one in the nation's history to feature 100% of the Electoral College vote. The real question in 1788 was who would become vice president. At the time, like I say, this, this office was awarded to the runner-up in the electoral vote. Okay, so who's going to get this position as vice president? 
Well, lo and behold, it turned out to be a tie. In 1800, we have a tie. Electoral politics got serious. Forget the hand-holding piece of George Washington's first run. Political parties were in full swing by this time, and they battled over high-stakes issues like taxes and states' rights and foreign policy. Thomas Jefferson ran as a Democrat-Republican candidate. That's right, it was called the Democrat-Republican Party. The opposition party was that of John Adams, the Federalists. Now, at the time, states got to pick their own election days. So voting ran from April to October. That's right, ran from April to October. You think we got a mess now? Can you imagine? Now, because of the complicated pick-two voting structure in the Electoral College, the election wound up being a tie between Jefferson and his vice presidential pick, Aaron Burr. Now, one South Carolina delegate was supposed to give one of his votes on the other candidate so as to arrange for Jefferson to win and Burr to become second. Now, somehow the whole plan went wrong, and both sides wound up with 73 electoral votes. So this sends a tie-breaking vote to the House of Representatives, not who, all of whom were on board with a Jefferson presidency and a Burr vice presidency. Seven days of voting followed. They voted like 30-something times, okay? But Jefferson finally pulled ahead of Burr, and the drama triggered the passage of the 12th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. They said, man, we can't do this again. And it stipulated in the 12th Amendment that the Electoral College had to pick the president and the vice president separately, doing away with this runner-up mess. Now, 1828... Think about this. Andrew Jackson, of all people, comes on the scene. And we know, boy, he was quite the character. But the 1828 electoral battle between Jackson and John Quincy Adams took the cake for mudslinging. Jackson had lost out to Adams in 1824 after Speaker of the House Henry Clay cast a tie-breaking vote. When Adams chose Clay as his Secretary of State, Jackson was furious and accused the two of a corrupt bargain. In other words, he bought his vote to get the job. And that was before the 1828 election even got started, when Adams was accused of pimping out an American girl to a Russian czar. Jackson's wife, Rachel, was called a convicted adulteress because she had, years before, as I mentioned earlier, married Jackson before finalizing her divorce to her previous husband. Now, Rachel died after Jackson won the election, but before his inauguration, at her funeral, Jackson blamed his opponent's bigamy accusations. And he said, May God Almighty forgive her murderers, as I know she forgave them, Jackson said. He said, I never can. So he's accusing his opponent of murder. Now, to round out the rough election, Jackson decides to hold an inauguration party open to the public, turned into a mob scene. Thousands of well-wishers crowded into the White House, and the rum and the wine flowed freely. Ladies fainted, men were seen with bloody noses, and such a scene of confusion took place as impossible to describe, wrote Margaret Smith, a Washington socialite who attended the party. Had to be a good time. 
And let me leave you with one final one. In 1872, incumbent Ulysses S. Grant had an easy run for a second term. Why? Because his opponent was dead. That's right, he died. Now, Grant had the election in the bag even before his opponent, Horace Greeley, died, however. The incumbent won 268 electoral votes. I'm sorry, 286 electoral votes compared with Greeley's 66 after Election Day. But on November 29, 1872, before the Electoral College votes were in, Greeley had died, and his electoral votes were split among other candidates. Greeley remains the only presidential candidate to die before the election was finalized. So folks, there you have it. You think mudslinging is bad today? You think what we're going to see between Trump and DeSantis is bad? I encourage you, go back and look how it was in the early days. These guys today are rank amateurs. That's all I have for today. I'm Professor Jim Paisley. If you'd like to help me continue these shows, it's as simple as clicking the support link where you access this podcast. Thanks, and be sure to remember your history. Mm -hmm.